1: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor.
2: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm speaking to you from the borough of Queens. It is the 23rd day of August 2022. I want to thank each of you for sending along. Those of you who have taken the time to send along your comments about this show, we're always uh, happy to hear from you. Uh, whatever you have to say about the show, it's very helpful to us. Uh, also, want to thank our sponsors for. Uh, I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show: Irving Resources, Novo Resources, Laurel Resources, SK Mining, Timberline Resources, and Lion One Metals. Um, I want to really uh, just talk a little bit about before we, I get into today's show. Talk a little bit about some ideas. Uh, from Bob Hoy, who has uh, been a guest on this show in the past, and perhaps I should get him on again. He sent me a, his latest newsletter reminding me again that gold shares perform best when the real price of gold rises. What Bob means by the real price of gold is not the price of gold in dollars, but the price of gold relative to the price of uh, materials that are used to get gold out of the ground. Bob points out that over the, the past 300 years or so, the practice of printing money to wage war leads to bubbles in stock and bond prices as well as commodity prices while the price of gold during that time tends to remain relatively relatively stagnant but then gold miners have a tough time making money when you know the cost of getting the stuff out of getting gold out of the ground um, is going up relative to the price of gold but when you have the bust after these boom periods what happens is that the, the, um, the price of getting gold out declines, getting gold out of the ground declines, and so the margins for mining companies tends to go up. And this is uh, proven to be true over major bull markets for gold and gold mining shares. Uh, the 1930s, for example, and more recently uh, 2008, for a couple of years right after the uh, financial crisis, we saw this happen. Well, Bob also points out that there are uh, several things that you should be look- on the lookout for Uh, four things, actually, that he outlines in his newsletter. One is that gold should rise relative to the price of copper, Dr. Copper, as some people call it. The gold-silver, that is, gold to silver should rise. The price of gold should go up relative to silver. And long-term interest rates should be increasing in real terms. And the senior currency, which, of course, uh, is the dollar still at this point in time, the dollar or the senior currency will get stronger relative to other, uh, relative to other fiat currencies. Well, if history is prologue, it seems that we may be set right now uh, for a major turn in the gold mining share market because all of those four indicators are now in motion. But of course, time will tell. I've titled today's show um, "Waiting for Gold's Next Turn." Waiting for gold's next turn. By that we mean. Um, waiting for the turn for gold to rise in price. Yes, and we're talking in relative to dollars. Uh, but uh, maybe also we'll need to pay some attention to what gold does relative to uh, the commodities in general. My guests today, Brian London and John Rubino, both of them have been guests in the past, although Brian not as frequently as John. The Fed seems to be dead set on tightening monetary conditions into a recession come hell or high water, which has never been done before. Usually, the Fed loosens under these conditions, but now it's tightening because of the high rates of inflation. While gold, silver, and other tangible assets have been hit hard recently, we've seen periodic rallies in the US stock market as most of today's traders who have grown up watching the Fed rescue them every time the market turns down seriously, Well, these people have, like Pavlov's dog, been eager to rush back in to buy the dips after every significant sell-off. Might David Stockman be right when he opined on this show several weeks ago that there will be no pivot by the Fed anytime soon because the worst inflationary problem since the 1970s isn't going away so quickly, and because David thinks the uh, masses who are mad as hell about these rising prices are going to demand that the government do something about them and if the Fed is going to do anything the only thing it seems to know to do is to pull back on the creation of money at least for a little while in other words uh, David though David thinks that the Fed is going to have to keep the brakes on for a protracted period of time because the inflation problem is so severe and of course it is uh, an inflation problem that is caused as much by the supply shortages it is by Uh, monetary easing although the good lord there's been a ton ton of trillions and trillions of dollars that have been pumped into the system so even if the supply isn't there the demand is there to bid up the price on on all manner of items and so we're getting something close to double-digit inflation recently well we'll ask Brian uh, about his views on the feds monetary policy as well as other factors impacting markets and what he is looking for in the gold markets to provide a green light That tells investors that they should back up the truck and start buying undervalued gold and silver stocks. Brian will be with me in the second half of today's show to discuss that. Last week, Alistair McCloud wrote in an article titled Geopolitics: The World is Splitting in Two. Um, He he wrote that article, and we have to when we go to commercial break, when we come back from commercial break, I want to ask John Rubino to come to opine on some of the ideas that are in. Alistair's uh, letter last week very interesting when Alistair points out that at this point in time as the world is splitting into two, basically two major power structures one being the existing NATO US block which has combined only about 19 percent of the world's population that compares to 54 percent of the world's population that is combined in what might be considered the Russian China block The other 27% or so of the world's population are in countries that are not at this point in time aligned to either side. But clearly there are some major shifts that are taking place in the markets around the world, geopolitically, and then as a result in the markets that are destined to change our lives dramatically in the future. We're going to go to commercial break now, but when we come back, I want to discuss this and some other issues with John Rubino. So don't go away. We'll be right back with John Rubino.
1: Lion One Metals is focused on high grade gold in Fiji, led by legendary Canadian financier Walter Barakoff. Lion One is permitted for production and drilling for discoveries in one of the most exciting high grade gold projects in the prolific South Pacific Ring of Fire. Lion One trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol LIO and on the OTCQX under the symbol LOMLF. Go to our website at liononemetals.com for more information. About Lion One metals and high grade gold in Fiji.
3: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
1: You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor
2: Welcome back, Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Really happy to have my friend, John Rubino, with us Uh, once again. John is one of the most frequent guests on this show. Always great to have him. His insights are treasured by our listeners and by yours truly. So uh, really happy to have him with us again. um, John, of course, is uh, the co-author, along with James Turk, of uh, The Money Bubble and uh, What to Do Before It Pops. And uh, John always has some good ideas. He's also written... Uh, some other books is uh, one is the green tech boom. Uh, you might want to ask him picking winners and, and uh, picking winners in the green tech boom. And boy, we're certainly talking about the green New Deal and all that. Uh, certainly, John must have some opinions on on some of that and what it's uh, you know and how it's playing havoc with our markets. But John, thank you so much for joining us today again. Hey Jay, good to talk to you again. Always good to have you with us. And, you know, I, I passed along this article from Alistair McLeod, Geopolitics, the World is Splitting in Two. I don't know if you had a chance to look at it or not, but I found it to be a very, very, very interesting insights from Alistair. Do you have a chance to look at it?
3: I did. It was interesting. You know, basically, uh, Alistair is, is citing a, a strategist from 100 years ago mm-hmm. who was predicting, at the time, a lot of what's happening right now. Which is mm-hmm. to say that, uh, you know, it's in Russia's strategic interest to uh, expand its sphere of influence to the countries around it. And that is basically a fulcrum that will use, that will allow them to control a big part of the world, in theory. Mm-hmm. And, uh, a lot of what's happening today uh, kind of looks like that. Mm-hmm. Although I, I would say that um, I- instead of it being some grand theory that russia has been pursuing for all these decades and is now being implement implemented by vladimir putin that it's more a um, a problem with the stupidity of u.s policy that mm-hmm. is forcing a lot of countries to do what they're doing you know because we've we've had the world's reserve currency mm-hmm. since world war ii and we could have used that power, the power that comes with having the money that everybody wants and that you can create out of thin air, we could have used that for good, and instead we used it to basically bully a lot of the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, if anybody steps out of line now from uh, the the dictates of the U.S. global military empire, we threaten to kick them out of the monetary system. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, we use the dollar to uh, diminish their power and increase ours. And naturally, that kind of grates on Russia, China, India—you know, other other countries who are, um, by virtue of uh, of you know their their position in the world or their population or or other capabilities—who who feel like they should have some power too, you know—and and so it shouldn't be a surprise to us, based on how we have behaved in the U.S., um, that these other countries are now. In effect, setting up a completely parallel global financial system to compete with the dollar based global financial system. And it's pretty formidable. You know, you combine Russia, China and India and you've got a lot of um, financial power there with which to set up separate trade um, relationships and uh, you know for instance create a currency that is a basket of those other currencies then back it with gold and have it compete with the dollar you know those things are all possible and our behavior the US's behavior is accelerating the process of this new gigantic financial and possibly military union that's emerging out there right now.
2: Yeah well it seems to me that um... We could have used the dollar for more constructive means, but uh, Eisenhower warned us back when he was leaving office of uh, the military industrial complex, and I think he foresaw the profit motives in war as a threat to our country and its um, and, and the things that we believed in and held dear in terms of personal freedom and the like and um, it, it, you know, if you just look at what's going on now in the Ukraine, it's it's a stalemate, really. It's a stalemate. But there's no there's no desire, it seems, to have uh, to to have some sort of a stalemate or some sort of a peace arrangement, because we just keep hearing about how we're sending another several hundred billion dollars worth of weapons over to uh, to Zelensky, and of course, who's who's providing those weapons. Well, it's mostly our arms dealers, I suppose. Uh, but in any event, Alistair makes the point that Putin wants America out of Europe. He sees us as a, as a thorn in his side, essentially. And uh, he wants the U.S. out. Uh, and of course, if you go back to the fall of the Soviet Union, it's in writing, we promised the Soviet Union, when they put down their arms, that we wouldn't take one inch of new we wouldn't expand NATO one inch. I think Secretary of Baker wrote, it's in writing. And we promised Russia we wouldn't do that. Well, what, what, what have we done since then? We've taken every Eastern European country virtually. And now it was just a bridge too too far crossed, I guess you might say, when we decided that we wanted to, or at least talk, started talking about adding the Ukraine into NATO. And I think that was the breaking point for Putin. He said, that's enough. We can't let this go any further. Is that your read of it, John? Yeah,
3: it is. Uh, you know, Russia has been saying all along, look, we need defensible borders. We, we can't have a hostile military alliance right on our borders, you know, just, just like um, the U.S. in the Cuban missile crisis. The Soviet Union at the time tried to basically incorporate um, Cuba into its military alliance, and we were ready to fight World War III over that. So Russia is now in the position of having to decide what to do about an encroaching uh, military alliance. And they, they finally, um, you know, they finally decided to go for it. and They, they invaded Ukraine. Uh, and the U.S., I, I, we kind of see that. I think our policymakers see this as a way of draining Russia's um, resources and weakening them. But that's not how it's turning out um, because... Uh, we've sanctioned Russia and and uh, tried to stop them from selling oil overseas, and, and basically what it means is we don't get the oil, and Europe doesn't get the oil and the gas, but the rest of the world still does. Those things are fungible. You can sell them to anybody, and uh, so Russia's making a lot of money on this. Mm-hmm. Their their finances are actually improving, which means they don't have any real incentive to, uh, to cut a deal with Ukraine, and we're, uh, you know, NATO is telling Ukraine not to settle, so That's why things haven't settled so far. Neither side really feels like um, it's in their interest to cut a deal and get this thing over with. And the longer it goes on, the more money Russia is making by selling its oil. And the weaker Europe becomes by being deprived of Russian natural gas. You know, Europe, I think, is the story here. I do too. Russia and China off to the side for a while. Look what's happening in in Germany and France and Italy. Uh, Those guys made themselves dependent on Russian natural gas. And then they proceeded to antagonize and sanction Russia, you know, thinking, I don't know what they were thinking. I mean, they must have assumed that they'd still get the natural gas, but they're not. And, um, well, among other things, what's happening in Europe now is that the price of electricity is up by like 10 times. I know. From this time last year. And a lot of industries that require a lot of electricity, for instance, aluminum smelting. Are, are looking at having to shut down, um, which means they're going to be, um, well, it means today's messed up supply chains are going to get much more messed up going forward. And and meanwhile in Germany, they're, they're literally telling people, well, you know, if you can't heat your house, you, this winter maybe you should look and see if there's some firewood around mm-hmm. or you know, instead of taking a shower wipe yourself off with a wet rag <laughs> they're telling their people stuff like that and this is germany you know arguably the uh, the richest society in the world right now uh, and so they're looking at a, a tremendously complex painful six months or so as they go into the winter here um where that where there could be civil unrest there could be extreme political instability and there's definitely going to be a recession Um, so you know to the extent that the global economy depends on a healthy europe um, to produce things and to buy things uh, it's not going to be the case going forward for a while and this hurts us in the um, nato um, u.s europe alliance and it it doesn't really hurt russia and china all that much at all so it, it, it looks like the longer this goes on the more the balance of power shifts towards russia uh, to an extent towards china and possibly towards india so those guys get richer while we get poorer
2: unless we do something radical to stop the whole thing you know john you mentioned uh, firewood and I, I can't remember which country it was it was a lesser country in europe that is banning exports of firewood now because they want to have it for themselves but you know uh it, to poke Putin in the eyes with a, with a couple of sticks, we also have uh, – we're trying to annex uh, Sweden and Finland, I guess it is, into the into NATO as well, and other countries that border Russia. So it doesn't seem as though we're interested very much in peace, and I would suggest that there's an awful lot of money to be made by having to, by having enemies. It seems to be that's, that's what's going on. But John, you mentioned um, we're doing our part we're doing our part. We're paying more money now for natural gas. It hasn't hit us too hard in the U.S. yet. But natural gas has gone from $2 to $10 or something like that now. This morning, it hit a new high in North America, over $10. Uh, And that's largely because, as I understand it, at least in part, it has to do with, I think in large part, due to the fact that we are creating LNG, liquefied natural gas, and exporting it to Europe to try to offset what Putin isn't providing. And of course, the winter is coming when there's going to be an even greater need to heat homes in, in Europe. Uh, so I think, you you know, what you, say, what you said is right. The longer this goes, the more it seems to play into Putin's hands. But there seems to be an a, a sort of an arrogant attitude on the part of the West that or the United States, at least, that we can continue to create money out of thin air. We can do it forever. We have the dollar, the almighty dollar. It is the world's currency, reserve currency. There's no way that's ever going to end in the minds of most people. Uh, even though what you're talking about, there, there certainly are thoughts of, of replacing the dollar from our adversaries. Um, but you know, what do you? This is going to push up. This is, I would say, already is pushing up our costs. Uh, or will do a lot more in the winter. I mean, we haven't seen our electricity prices here in New York City go up very much. It's gone up some, uh, uh, but not nothing like tenfold. But it's gone up maybe twenty or thirty percent, something like that, so far. But winter, when winter comes, and these things sort of take a little time uh, before they're priced into the uh, electricity costs. Um, it just seems to me that this is this is not a good game we're playing, and I, d- I don't know why um, you know why they can't see what we're talking about. Why the policymakers don't see it? What's keeping them from understanding this?
3: Well, I, I think you hit the nail on the head, Jay, a minute ago when you said um, the military-industrial complex is making money from this. So to yeah. those guys, this isn't so bad because their uh, uh, their income statements are all pointing in the right direction. They're all making a lot of money by. Uh, for instance, selling a lot more arms to Ukraine and, uh, and financing uh, an expansion of NATO, things like that. That, that makes money for the arms um, manufacturers who finance a lot of political campaigns. So it's, it's not unlike what happened in public health just lately, <laughs> where we did a lot of irrational things, um, because it enriched some very big, very powerful com- companies who mm-hmm. were the financiers of a lot of political campaigns. So if you look, if you follow the money and you look at who profits, it's not as crazy as it seems. There, there are actual beneficiaries with a lot of power um, for today's policies. So that that could be just the explanation right there. You know, these guys aren't crazy. They're not incredibly incompetent. They're actually pursuing. Their
2: own profits as they see it, and they're succeeding brilliantly so far. Yeah, it would sure it would sure seem that that's the case. You know, uh, speaking of military conflicts, we might not have to go so far away. I understand that Russia is running some military exercises with Venezuela now. So you know, maybe uh, maybe the boys are licking their chops for some war closer home. I, I hope not, but um, you know, one can only now. Here's the thing, John. We have. This situation where energy prices are going up, uh, people are having, you know, we're in a recession, or arguably, or we soon will be, and inflation is eating away at the living standards of average people, moving them out of their homes into homeless situations in some cases. It's, it's a dire situation for many millions of Americans, but who cares, right? What's the big deal? The government can always print money and send us checks, right? Isn't this what's going to happen? We're going to have Uncle Joe is going to send us all checks if we need to, if you know, if our incomes are below a certain level, we can just put our hands out and collect the money, and there's no problem at all.
3: Yeah. Well, if you want to talk about long-term nefarious plans, this kind of looks like one where they make us more and more dependent on government aid. And because we're, we're dependent, we become more and more easy to push around and control. Right. So. Yeah, the next big recession, the next energy crisis, the the next whatever, the next pandemic, whatever, um, is going to increase government power over regular people by making us dependent on them one way or another, with the ultimate goal of us being always dependent. You know, it won't just be crisis specific pretty soon. It'll just be our natural existence, um, you know, in which we depend on that monthly check from the government. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we basically have to do what we're told, you know, and, and there, there's still time to turn away from that. But we are really headed in that way at, a, at an accelerating rate. And, and hopefully uh, people start to see that and they respond politically and um, however else, you know, they, they can vote with their pocketbooks. They can vote politically uh, and they can hit the streets. And uh, that's happening all around the world. We're seeing civil unrest in many different places right now because of um, uh, of inflation and unemployment and geopolitics and hopefully that kind of pressure turns the world's governments away from this this strange disturbing grab for power that they're all involved in right now but uh, i wouldn't be too optimistic about that just based on their success so far
2: yeah well, they will own nothing and they will be happy, Klaus Schwab said of the World Economic Forum, and that may be what they have in mind for us. But those of us who don't want to succumb to that kind of, uh, that kind of a lifestyle, uh, what suggestions do you have for them? Well,
3: um, th- there's very little you can do right now with your vote. I mean, we should participate in politics, but uh, as far as the, the coming financial crisis goes, at least... We can't stop that. You know, the uh, The world's fiat currencies are going to evaporate at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that at least is something you can protect yourself from. You know, you do that by moving out of financial assets. You know, get rid of your government bond funds and hold um, only the cash that you need to pay your bills with and move the rest of the money into real assets. That is well-chosen real estate, farmland, energy assets, precious metals, you know, go, precious metals miners, the uh, the gold and silver miners you cover in your newsletter are probably going to be big beneficiaries of the currency crisis that's coming. So those are the kinds of things you can uh, you can do with your finances that protect you at least to an extent from what's coming. You know, the political stuff, that's tougher. But uh, financially, at least, we have a lot of things we can do as individuals and uh, that that's that's about you know, it. I, I find that really psychologically helpful because as long as you're doing something, you know, mm-hmm. you, you're able to keep going. And, and uh, there, you know, by accumulating a lot of gold and silver, you're definitely doing something to help yourself financially going forward.
2: Right. You um, you just have to. You you're never going to have complete control, but you do what you can. Uh, what what makes sense in terms of your own finances, uh, taking care of your family and your loved ones, those around you as best you can, and then the rest we have to leave. In the hands, uh, for sure, everything in the hands of the Almighty, as far as I'm concerned. Well, John, thank you so much. We're going to talk to Brian London now about uh, waiting for the turn, the turn in gold, and gold is up a little bit today. Uh, do you think we might be? You think we might be getting there, John?
3: Well, yeah, I think there's a good chance of it uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that seasonality is a big deal in precious metals, and we're yeah. heading into the we're heading out of the doldrums and into the better. Um, Seasonal time for gold and silver. So normally September, October, November, December, those are good months for for precious metals. So that's coming. Uh, The other is that uh, we're, we're getting closer to the Fed's capitulation in this cycle. In other words, they're raising interest rates tightening a little tiny bit. It's affecting the economy. The economy's rolling over, especially, you know, housing is tanking. We didn't have a chance to talk about that, but uh, that's uh, that's going to slow the economy way down. The Fed at some point will stop tightening, go back to easing, and that's always great news for precious metals. So um, because of those two things, you know, we could have good seasonality, then the Fed capitulation might buy us a whole year of rocking financial or rocking precious metals
2: prices. And the miners, of course, we hope. All right, John. We'll the have miners, to keep it going. Yeah. yeah. Miners will do even better than precious metals themselves. That tends to be the case when yeah. we're in a bull market. All right. Thank you so much, John, for being with us. Always appreciate it. Well, folks, don't go away because Brian London will be with us. He's the author of Gold Newsletter, and he also heads up the famous annual New Orleans Investment Conference. He'll be with us right after the break, so don't go away. Timberline Resources is a mineral exploration and resource development company focused on gold discovery in the world-class mining jurisdiction of Nevada. The company's flagship
0: Eureka project hosts a significant gold resource and drill-indicated upside potential
2: at nearby higher-grade targets. Timberline Resources trades in Canada under the symbol TBR and on the OTCQB in the U.S. under the symbol TLRS. To learn more about this district-scale asset with exciting discovery potential, please visit www.timberlineresources.co.
3: Voice America Business Network,
0: the bottom line in business.
2: Welcome back to Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have Brian London with me once again. Brian has been on the show before, um, and I suppose that most of you who are gold investors are well aware of who he is, but for those of you who may not know him, he has had a career spanning three decades in the investment markets. Uh, he serves as president and CEO of Jefferson Financial. is a highly regarded publisher of market analysis and producer of investment-orientated events. Uh, under the Jefferson financial umbrella, Brian publishes uh, the gold newsletter, and uh, it's a cornerstone of precious metals advisories going back to 1971. Uh, he also hosts the New Orleans Investment Conference. That's the oldest and most respected investment event of its kind, and um, he, uh, he's he been around for a number of years. I've learned to know Brian through various uh, investment conferences that I've been a, a part of as well, and I'm really glad to have him with us today. Thanks for joining us, Brian. Great to be with you, Jay. Um, as always, really appreciate the opportunity. Well, it's great to have you. Um, you know, Before we get into, I want to talk about Waiting for the Turn, which is the title of your August newsletter. Before we get into that, just so we make sure we don't uh, miss it, uh, tell our listeners where they can go to sign up for the Gold Newsletter and then perhaps talk a little bit about your New Orleans conference that's coming up on October 12th through the 15th.
0: Yeah, uh, golden Newsletter is real simple. It's goldnewsletter.com. Um, and, you know, it's uh, the oldest precious metals advisory out there. Um, it's, uh, you know, Jim started it. Jim Blanchard started mm-hmm. it as his primary tool uh, in advocating for the return of the right of gold ownership for American citizens in 1971. And, and then he... Uh, Once he was successful in that and gold was about to be legalized in 1974, he uh, decided to have an investment conference to teach American investors how to invest in gold. Uh, And that started the conference business um, that now called the New Orleans Investment Conference. It's um, been going on. This is our 48th year this year. Wow. Uh Uh-huh. Well, certainly. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and it's, you know, another blockbuster event this year, October 12th to the 15th, and featuring a lot of today's, you
2: know, top analysts and thinkers in the markets. Yeah, indeed. Uh, um, some of them, I think, uh, well, people like James Grant, Jim Rickards. Yeah. I see that uh, Daniel Martino Booth is going to be there. Peter Bukvar, a lot of these people we've had on this show from time to time. Doug Casey. Uh, yeah, lots of names that I recognize, Robert Prechter, of, of old. Yeah, lots of uh, lots of reasons to go. Uh, it is a conference that's uh, the that people do need to pay. and There's an admission price, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: Just like Gold Newsletter, Gold Newsletter has a paid subscription model. Uh, the conference is a paid uh, attendance conference uh, uh, model, and you know it's it's different. There are non there are no uh, commercial presentations on the main stage. It's very content focused. And, uh, and you know, I, I tell people that they, they get great advice and great insights from the stage, but uh, the audience is, uh, is equally valuable. There's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a gathering of really smart people, people who search out their own information and come up with their own ideas and direct their own investments. So the, the intellectual
2: atmosphere and environment is really stimulating. I don't doubt it. I've unfortunately, it's one of those things I've never another conferences I've never gone to. Even though I did talk to Jim Blanchard when he was still with us years and years ago, Brian, and uh, regret that I've never made it. I've got it. I still have to do it uh, sometime. That's for sure. Maybe next year. Absolutely. All right. Um, all right. So I, I'm really waiting for the turn. Uh, we've titled the show today after your the title of your uh, the headline in your newsletter. Waiting for the turn. Waiting for the turn in Golden. and we're seeing a little bit of a run up today. Uh, do you think it might be starting? Maybe. You know, Jay, uh, you and I know
0: better than to predict. Uh, <laughs> uh, we can predict a price or a time, but never both. Um, wow. We're smart enough to do that. Um, yeah, it's, it's tough to say. If you look at the charts, it looks like we had kind of a typical summertime bottom around the third week of July, right about where we would expect it, you know, using the uh, past experience. Um, and then we started back up in kind of a stealth rally that, that long-time players in the, the, the market like you and I, we, we didn't want to call it a bottom. We didn't even want to look at it for fear that it would jinx it, but um, <laughs> it, it sure looked like a bottom. And now it, it we're, we were kind of rolling over over the last week or so. So I wrote yesterday in one of my pieces that if this trend continues, the best we could hope for would be a a double bottom, if not a, a, a drop back below $1,700. But today looks good because the rationale for today's rally isn't much, you know. And when the metals move on on pretty, um, you know, thin excuses for a rally, then that, that shows a more bullish environment and that the sellers are exhausted. So I'm hopeful that today may mark a turn, but smart enough not to
2: predict it. Well, came sure. into that for sure, well, Brian, I'd like to get your ideas as to why you know gold has not kept up with inflation recently. it has over the long term. We know yeah. that gold reho- gold retains its purchasing power over not hundreds but perhaps thousands of years uh, and so what are some of the what are some of the dynamics what are some of the underpinnings that have kept gold from performing, not keeping up with u uh, s inflation, consumer inflation yeah. Jay,
0: I tell people that gold is not an inflation hedge. You know, the naysayers are correct in that respect. Um, if they want or if anyone wants to a real inflation hedge, they need to invest in oil or energy because mm-hmm. it's the only asset that's actually factored into the CPI.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, the only thing that's actually going to track it tick for tick. But what gold is, is it's insurance against an inevitability, the ultimate, the the eventual uh, devaluation of fiat currencies and whatever your home currency may be. And as such, it's it acts more like insurance. You know, um, down here in the South, uh, insurance rates go up the greater the risk is of a hurricane. And when there's a hurricane in the Gulf, you simply can't buy insurance at any price. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So that's what happens with gold. It's not so much a hedge against inflation, but it is a hedge against people freaking out about the future purchasing power of their currency. So it'll just kind of bop along, you know, in in steady state and maybe not do much for years and years. But when people start to finally get worried about what's going to happen to their currency, then they start buying gold and you can see it go really exponential and even overshoot uh, what would be equilibrium. So it makes up for lost time, in other words. So it's really a barometer of people's worry. And when people truly get worried about what's going to happen, um, then it reacts. And, you know, if you and I and other people who have been in the uh, around for a while know that this is one of those environments that if people aren't already really worried, really freaked out about their currency, they're about to be. At some point over the next few years, they're really going to get worried. And that's when we're going to see gold react.
2: Yeah, um, certainly is- does seem to be a lot of things to worry about. Uh, that's always the case, but I don't know. Maybe it's it, it just seems like there's more things now than yeah than other times in our lifetime. we can. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the the, um, uh, the 1970s when we had essentially de- double digit inflation, at least a, a bit of it. Yeah. Uh, and it, it reminds me an awful lot of what's going on now. Oil prices were going to the moon then. There there seem to be for various reasons geopolitical factors coming into play then as they are now. Um, but uh, you know, so it really seems like there's a lot of reasons to own gold now. And buy that insurance before it's hard to get it. I guess is the message you're yeah, giving.
0: there's a lot of differences from uh, between today and the 1970s as well. You know, first off, if you measured inflation just by the CPI, not Wall Street's uh, uh-huh. painted, you know, inflation expectation gauges. But if you measured inflation as we did in the 1970s, uh, and actually, as we know, that's not the same because they messed up the CPI. Yes. But still, if you use the CPI, then real rates are as negative today as at any time in the 1970s. So from that standpoint, it's very similar. The big difference now is debt, primarily federal debt. You know, back then, Uh, uh, federal debt was about 30 percent, 30, 35 percent of GDP. Today it's closer to 130 percent. Exactly. So so there's nothing that can be done. You know, Volcker hiked interest rates above the rate of inflation. Uh, Powell and, and his cronies don't have that same toolbox. They can't do that because of the size of the debt. It would just completely blow the federal budget out of water. And in fact, exacerbate the problem itself because you get stuck in a in a much quicker debt spiral, borrowing to pay interest on the federal debt. Um, so it's it it can't be done. So the 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 Fed right now is powerless to fight inflation, and you know that's what I think is going to come in to really boost gold uh, shortly. I, I think sometime this fall, October, November, we're going to see the the. Cost of servicing the debt get to the point where it makes headlines, and interestingly, so it's already spiraled back to to levels uh, that precede the uh, the pandemic, back to pre pandemic levels. It's it's really shooting up already, and isn't factoring in uh, a lot of the Fed's interest rate hikes yet.
2: Oh, exactly, and I, I've seen some academic studies that suggest that when you get to the level of int- of uh, debt to GDP that we have. The system simply can't take interest rates much beyond where they are now. Uh, and and the argument from those fellows uh, is that the system, that we're not going to have higher rates because the system simply can't take it. Uh, what do you think? I think you know? that's
0: exactly right. I've actually been talking about that for a few years now. Um, and and that was before the pandemic and before the, the increase in the federal debt that we've seen um, as a result. And it and it is. It's a death spiral spiral. It is a, a debt spiral when you are borrowing money at much higher interest rates to pay the interest on the debt you already have. Things get exponential at that point in time and and the water just starts circling the drain ever more quickly.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I take from what you said then that you you don't believe Uh, It seems like the mainstream um, discussion that we hear when you turn on Bloomberg or CNBC or whatever is that there's still confidence that the Fed can get us down to that 2% rate, you know, that that targeted 2% rate for whatever reason. 2% was supposed to be the sort of dream rate of inflation that was going to get us to nirvana. Uh, um, Obviously, you don't believe that's possible then.
0: Well, no, I don't. I I think that for a lot of, you know, kind of wonky reasons – uh, we're going to have higher inflation going forward, or or at least another wave of inflation. I think in the near term, we have reached peak inflation at around 9% or so, and it will fall back. But we don't have wage inflation yet really hitting the numbers. Uh, we don't have uh, housing or rents really having their full impact, although those have come off the boil a bit. Uh, they never did get to the point where they impacted the, uh, the CPI, and they're about to do that. So there's still a lot of inflation embedded in the system and embedded in people's expectations. It's anchored in expectations at this point and affecting habits and, and, and the like. And that's when you get into these cycles where the, the inflationary pressures start to reinforce themselves. So uh, I, I think we're still going to have 5 to 6% levels of inflation. And then at some point, another wave is whatever happens down the road. Um, so I don't think the Fed can do anything about it. And, and you know, so what happens then? Well, I, I think they have to give in at some point and start trying to rescue the economy. Um, they can fight the inflation or they can fight the recession. They can't do both. And they may not be able to do either, but I think they're going to have to fight the recession at some point and give up the ghost on the inflation
2: fight. That's interesting because we've had, uh, David Stockman sort of, Sort of shocked me when I had him on the show, and he suggested that we're not going to see any kind of pivot anytime soon from Powell, he thought because um, because he said that the that the policymakers, the Fed, and the policymakers in Washington are deathly afraid of an angry population angry over the inflation situation um, because, you know, Brian, there's something like half of our population lives hand to mouth, essentially from one paycheck yeah. to the next. They have no savings. They have no ability to withstand the storm of any kind. Uh, and David's thought was that that these guys are seeing, you know, people coming with torches and pitchforks, and and that Powell is not going to re- is not going to change his mind. On the other hand, when I, you know, hear read people like Matthew Pippenberg, uh, you know, he, his view is that the Fed was always there to create inflation, make sure the government was funded. Uh, so I, I guess you would probably be more in the uh, Pippenberg camp than in the Stockman camp on this issue.
0: Well, I, I appreciate what, what David's saying in, in, in that it is, it, especially for the lower echelons of, of uh, economic wealth, of wealth, mm-hmm inflation is just absolutely debilitating it you know the rich can avoid it the rich can even profit from it uh but it is absolutely disastrous for anyone who's living paycheck to paycheck um so i totally appreciate that point the other point is however that with debt this high they can't get the interest rates above the rate of inflation mm-hmm so we're seeing what is essentially a 40 some year process playing out in front of us we if you and i do this in my presentations i show a chart of the fed funds rate going back to the early 1980s
4: mm-hmm. when
0: volcker actually started to come off of his, um, his you know pull back his medicine of, of ultra high interest rates right and what you see is that during any point when there's a recession or anything that was kind of a hiccup in the economy or perceived potential hiccup in the economy, the the um, the Federal Reserve had the same prescription in each case. It lowered interest rates. And you can see these interest rate bottoms of these uh, uh, rate uh, cut cycles, one after another, like a stair step going from the second story down to the foundation to the right. first floor. And then it just bounces along at zero a couple of times 2008 uh, obviously 2020 and where do we go from here well the fed comes up with all these other policies you know from from tarp to qe to every other acronym to try and rescue the economy in every every time they do this they have to do more they have to have more monetary adrenaline more of the the uh, the monetary drug for the addict who has developed a tolerance so the markets and the economy, they're not addicted to easy money. They're addicted to ever easier money. Right. Uh, um, and so the next time, they're going to have to do yet more and more and more. But the bottom line is that this long 40 some odd year process from the 19th, end into the 1970s to today is reaching its end game. Now, I, I don't know if this cycle is uh, the bust that destroys the dollar like Peter Schiff believes, or whether they're able to kick the can down the road for a couple more cycles or so. Um, but I think it is, number one, not a dollar issue. It's a fiat currency issue. Mm-hmm. All fiat currencies are, are running down the hill together. Some times are in the lead, sometimes some lag, but they're all, all going down the hill together. So I think it's a fiat currency issue. And I think we're in the end game. And I don't know what the precise path ahead may be. But I do know you're going to want to own gold, silver, tangible assets, you know, and associated investments going into it.
2: Well, certainly, um, from what I understand, China and Russia and a lot of central banks around the world are building up their gold reserves. Doesn't seem to be a, a concern with most Western banks, central banks, as far as I know. Uh, but this would seem to be, um, you know, an Alistair MacLeod, who we have frequently on this show, just wrote an article called Geopolitics, the world is splitting in two, in which he points out Russia and China, I don't know if I think he includes India in there as well, uh, with something like 54% of the world's population compared to the NATO bloc with something like 19% of the world's population. I believe those are the numbers. Uh, there does seem to be something coming in terms of geopolitical um, monetary structure. Would you agree with that? Yeah,
0: yeah, there is. And, you know, sovereign nations, particularly Russia and China, are smart. They know that whatever's happening isn't good, and whoever owns the gold is going to have uh, the most power and say in what comes next. Um, the, the, the U.S. is actually in pretty good shape because whatever the reset, is it's very likely to include gold as some sort of an anchor uh you know to to instantly give credibility back to currencies you can you can connect them to gold and it doesn't have to be a set gold standard you know nixon caught a lot of deserved heat for breaking uh for closing the gold window and, mm-hmm. and dissociating the dollar from gold he didn't have a whole lot of choice i mean the vaults were being emptied. one thing he could have done uh, was just devalued. Mm-hmm. Keep keep the connection, but just make you know more dollar raise the price of gold. Right. Effectively, he could have done that. The problem with that is it it's an admission of failure. Mm-hmm. Instead of having this uh, behind the scenes ongoing inflation depreciating the purchasing power, and nobody really to blame. When you devalue, the blame is is directly uh, on your shoulders. And, you know, and it makes news and everybody right. sees it. Uh, but I think we're going to get to some kind of a position like that where the, uh, um, the dollar is associated uh, with gold and all fiat currencies, frankly. Yeah. yeah.
2: Just uh, less than two minutes left here, Brian, um, what do you see for the gold share markets? I know you certainly follow gold in your newsletter. You have a lot of favorite companies you write about uh might we see a turn there pretty soon yeah you know i that turn
0: will come with gold you know Mm -hmm. I, i have a lot of friends as you do that are involved in those markets and the mining stocks and they talk about how bad sentiment is uh you know for the junior mining shares and you know how hard it will be to turn around that sentiment and i tell them it doesn't really matter what the sentiment is it's going to follow gold and gold does not care what the sentiment is on bay street or anything you know they hit gold is going to be moved for other reasons and uh, and i think upward and i think that will turn that market so if you want to know where the mining shares are going to go you need to try and figure out or see where gold itself is going to go because silver is going to follow gold the mining shares are going to follow the metals uh and it'll all happen in in order but you need to get the gold price up
2: first all right. Well, I think we uh, maybe we're on our way, fingers crossed, but we'll see. Um, thank you so much, Brian, for being with us. Your insights are greatly appreciated, and I hope we can do it again sometime. Would love to, Jay. Really appreciate it. All right. All right, folks, well, that is it for this week. Uh, next week, my guest will be Keith Weiner of the Monetary Metals, and Michael Oliver will return as well. Until next Tuesday, goodbye, and God's blessings to you.